This is Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Kota, and today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Milos Popovich, Senior Scientist and Director at UHN's Toronto Rehab Research Arm called KITE, short for Knowledge, Innovation, Talent, Everywhere. Dr. Popovich is an award-winning rehab pioneer who invented a medical device that restores upper limb mobility to people with paralysis caused by spinal cord injury and stroke. He joins us in a minute, but first, here's the backstory on Dr. Milos Popovich. One of his early memories growing up in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, is at age seven, a natural lefty. Young Milos was told he must learn to be right-handed. Not wanting to stick out, he complied. A conversion he believes affected his spelling and memory. At the same time, making all the more challenging another demand, learning a second language, English. For university, he was drawn to medicine and physiology. But because of his memory issues, Milos chose engineering, where he excelled in a world of numbers, equations, and spatial thinking. Then, in 1991, came another challenge. While looking at PhD programs, ethnic tensions were on the rise. Yugoslavia was on the brink of a brutal civil war. The military was looking for conscripts. Milos vividly remembers soldiers banging on doors in his parents' apartment building. But as they approached his door, one of the soldiers said, we'll come back. The next day, he received a call from a professor at the University of Toronto, asking if he'd like to come to study in Canada. Milos leapt at the chance and no sooner was on a plane to Toronto with nothing more than a student visa and relentless ambition. Today, he's called a game-changing leader in the world of rehabilitation therapy, helping to restore function to stroke and spinal cord injured patients. Dr. Milos Popovich, Senior Scientist and Director of Toronto Rehab's Kite Research Arm, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Thank you. Let's start with people who survive spinal cord injury or stroke. What's the outlook typically for them in terms of movement and quality of life? These are two very different pathologies. So in case of spinal cord injury, there are two major groups in the sense of either they have um, full body paralysis, both upper limbs and lower limbs, and the other group actually has primarily lower limbs which are affected. And um, uh, they're about 50-50% is the, the distribution. The population is very small. You're looking about 1,000 people in Canada annually. However, the fact that they're not able to do a lot of things themselves and they need attendant care and things of that nature puts them in a situation that they have long recovery periods. They have complicated rehabilitation programs, intensive rehabilitation programs. And many of these patients actually do not recover independence in activities of daily living. So for those patients with upper limb paralysis, yep. what's been on offer previously to help them regain function and movement? There are conventional therapies that we have applied to the patients, physiotherapy, occupational therapy. Then there is also tools how to substitute missing function. So it's not really restoring the function, but substituting. If you cannot do it this way, what kind of trick or what kind of tool can you use so that you can carry out the task on your own with the limited uh, function that you have in your arms? So that was the dominant approach. In last couple of last 10, 20 plus years, a couple of things emerge. Robotics technology, you've seen it on TV. People are trying to use robotics as a way to deal with that. 
And the other technology which evolved was electrical stimulation, but not as a therapy, rather as a way to substitute the function. So if the person is paralyzed, you could electrically activate the muscles in the arm and generate artificially reaching and grasping movement. That technology has been out there for about 30 years by that time. So I'm a late comer to the game. So this has been started in the, the 60s? In 60s. They've been using it, but they use it as an orthosis, which means like a substitute for the movement. That we came with the idea to use it as a therapeutic tool mm -hmm. to retrain the brain, that was new. So that previous paradigm in terms of treatment of substituting uh, the ability to move, my understanding is we're going back to the 90s now. That didn't sit well with you, and you wanted to change that paradigm? That's correct. So one thing which is important, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I have not been trained in the art of therapy, in physiology. I came from totally different space. I come from robotics and aerospace engineering and electrical engineering. When are we talking about here? We're when talking you about 96. 96. 96, 97. And you in Zurich. In Zurich. Yeah. Where was this That's at? Uh, actually at the Swiss Institute of Technology. This is ETH. This is one of the premier uh, engineering schools in the world. That's like European MIT. And they actually commissioned me to move to the hospital, which is Balgrist. Uh, it's part of the university hospital system in Zurich to work on this technology and these patients. So what happened was I was I was listening to the colleagues. So, you know, when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do. So let's build this electrical stimulation to substitute the function. So in the mid-late 90s, when you're developing this machine, what's it look like when it's hooked up to a patient? At that time, it was like a box, about half of the shoebox size. It had four cables coming out of that, mm -hmm. four pairs of cables. and each side of the cable has a little self-adhesive electrode, which is kind of like a sticker. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to ECG recordings, mm -hmm. to cardiologists, when they put these little electrodes on your chest, something like that, where you provide very specific low-energy electrical pulses to the muscles, mm -hmm. actually the nerves which are going to muscles. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you get muscles to contract. What we do is we go and target very specific muscles, which are responsible, for example, for you're touching your nose. So there's a whole slew of eight, 16 muscles which are involved in that task. So we will fire them all in a coordinated fashion that your arm, which is paralyzed, will be able to touch your nose without you being able to control the process. How did you know where to put that is the electrical a, that's stimulation? That's like, like cooking, right? You, you, you know which muscles you want to activate to get a task. Yeah. And then you put the electrodes on them, you fire them, and you know sometimes the arm doesn't go to your nose, it pokes you in the eye, but, and then you slowly adjust. adjust it and fine-tune it until you get it. So there's a knowledge, physiology, obviously, but there's a little bit of that kind of uh, master chef moment in which you need to add a little bit of your skills to make it work. Now, as we were doing that, I essentially prescribed a physiotherapist to work with this assistive device with the patient for 40 plus hours, 40, 60 hours. And, you know, therapist takes the device, starts working with the patient, and they often go and do their thing with the patient. And I go and I do my thing. And then 40, 60 days later, the patient comes and says, you know, I don't need this anymore. They have function. Yeah, and usually in assistive devices, Patients, when they tell you they don't need it, is because they don't like the color, the nurse doesn't want to put it on, it's not doing the function they want. 
And actually, the gentleman came and said, no, no, look at my fingers. I'm doing fine. I actually don't need it anymore. And remember, I know nothing. I'm just, you know, the guy who built the airplane just six months ago. So I come and I say, okay, that's interesting. So I take the patient to the neurologist and I say, so what's going on? And the neurologist says, oh, no, no, you were just unlucky. He has a spontaneous recovery. Going back to the fact that I have no previous experiences, okay, that's a legitimate answer. I thought, neurologist tells you spontaneous recovery, it's a legitimate answer. But after third spontaneous recovery, I thought you should not listen to what he's saying. Something is happening here. The challenge with this is there's a little kind of personality trace that I have, right? Is I'm very reverent to authorities. I, I, I don't listen to that stuff. I don't believe people. I want to see it if it's real or not. So I had a lot of conflicts in my high school and university where I would correct my professors what is wrong, right? <laughs> so for me, this is not the first time that I would go against the grain, right? So you're a disruptor. Yeah. So when I saw that, then I applied common sense. I said, okay, let, let's look. Then I would work with therapists. I'll work with my engineers, and we'll try to see what's going on. Making always an assumption that we are wrong in what we are judging or, or, or thinking it's going on. Mm -hmm. And having that skepticism that we are wrong and maybe they're wrong as well, let's see what's going on. And you know, like a proper scientist, let's do an experiment and see what will happen. And when you have three experiments which end up being positive and they're against what you read in neurological books, then you start thinking that the books that you're talking about recovery in spinal cord injury patients are probably wrong. And that's how all that started. So we changed the paradigm. So instead of using this electrical stimulation, uh, which activates the muscles artificially and gets them to contract, instead of using it as a permanent orthotic device substitute, we tried to use it as a therapy to see how much of the change can you elicit in the patient. So in 97, 98, 99, we were doing this, people were ridiculing that which is fine. The results? No, the, the idea, the approach. Ah, I see, okay. Okay, results, they thought it was just an outlier, just happened, right? And the other thing which was also relevant at the time is that people didn't believe in this, right? They didn't believe that neuroplasticity exists. Neuroplasticity was not in vocabulary in 97. You should probably explain what you mean by So neuroplasticity is... The concept in which the brain changes itself dynamically all the time, and the external inputs can change the way how the brain is wired, right? So somebody who, for example, has a paralysis, by intensive training and activating all the elements of the system which are responsible for the movement, you can actually reprogram the healthy part of the brain, which before was not used to perform this task, for example, opening and closing a hand is performed on one part of the brain. And you can actually train the brain and another part of the brain, which is not affected, will relearn how to do that task and substitute the part of the brain that was damaged due to stroke or spinal cord injury. And so is the concept of neuroplasticity a case where after 20, 30, 40 treatments, you're able to do this on your own without the electrical That's stimulation? Correct. So you slowly start gaining the ability to voluntarily move some of the muscles, and at the end, you're able to move all of them on your own without the help of the device. By that time, because we had all this different testing in Zurich, we actually knew that patients are improving. And at that time, UFT offered me the job. So, you know, I took those boxes, 
about 30-something boxes that we manufacture. And I put them in a container together with my chairs and furniture and pots and pens and whatever, and moved it to Toronto, where I became assistant professor in 2001. And then I start using those devices on Toronto rehab patients, UHM patients. In clinical trials. In clinical trials. It is very unusual for engineers to run randomized controlled trials, even the biomedical engineers. So I had to learn how to do that. I had to partner with excellent clinicians like Dr. Craven, who is with us, and Colin McGilvery, who is at uh, Toronto Rehab. And they were my door into the system. And also Dr. Hayek, who last Hayek, who was with stroke patients. So they opened the doors to access to stroke patients, spinal cord injury patients, and work with them. And we were fortunate to convince a couple of granting agencies to put serious money behind that, even at the time that this was not obvious that it will work. Mm-hmm. And with these clinicians and that funding and my team, we managed to start getting very exciting and really dramatic results in randomized controlled trials, which nobody else could match, neither in this technology or any other competing technology. So others were trying? Others were trying to do it with robotics. Others were trying to do it with electrical stimulation. Others were trying to do it with brain implants. And nobody came even close to the numbers that we have. So what were the outcome of your trials? So, for example, I would take a patient who is fully paralyzed. So he has no movement in the arm. Up, up, upper okay. limbs, so right. shoulder, elbow, wrist, and fingers. And we'll take them from that to them picking up a pen and writing their name after 40, 60 hours. So Milos, what kind of reaction were you getting from the healthcare industry to the results of your trials? It took quite a bit of time for the community to understand that this is real. I had actually no names, but I had a person fly in especially to check the technology, to check the videos, to check how we measure the data and how all this was done. Mm -hmm. Another scientist who was in the field and he thought that it's impossible to get these results because he was competing with us in that space and he could not come even close. So when he came and reviewed that, then he asked me for the slides and he became one of our strongest advocates. So he started telling other people, this is real, you need to look at this. Is part of the skepticism the fact that it seems really simple? Mm, the, The part of the skepticism is I think it's a human nature. How can this strange-looking man with a funny KGB accent do that, who is trained in some strange university, and I, who have been trained in Harvard, can't do it? It's impossible, right? So that's what it is. See, what our scientists usually fail is they're trying to follow the path what everybody else does. Mm -hmm. We start flying not because we follow the path of French and German scientists who tried to fly. We needed Wright brothers who were bike makers to go and build the first airplane. We were all on the wrong track. These two people who were not in aerospace, who were not flying, decided one day we're going to do it, changed the tools, changed the approach, and took us to flight. So you need somebody who is going to come in and be sufficiently disruptive. And it is not one person. It's not that I came and I changed the universe, right? But I was one of the many voices in cacophony saying, you know, people, we should look to this 
potential aspect of the technology. And I spend a lot of time and energy to voice that and to promote it and to do trials and to get things done. But I'm not the only one and I'm not the only person who has done this. So I was just one of the contributors. Where am I going to find a rehab clinic in Canada that offers functional electrical stimulation? So you will go to companies webpage, which is MindTech, and you will have a list of all the private clinics mm-hmm. who are offering that. Even the clinics at UHN at Toronto Rehab, which are offering this, are private clinics. And how widespread is this in Canada? I believe we have 18 clinics in Canada which are delivering that. Most of them are in Ontario. Is this a health procedure or a treatment that's covered by provincial? This is not covered by provincial government. You're shelling out of your own pocket. That's correct, which is actually bizarre. And I'll tell you why this is bizarre. And I've been talking about it all the time. So provincial government and federal government, through various grants, have enabled me, UHN and our team, to develop this technology. They probably have spent order of magnitude 10 to $15 million, $10 million to get this done. Helping you prove that it works. Exactly. Then they helped my company in a startup to create the product. Right. The product saves tremendous amount of money per patient. For example, if you're a spinal cord injury patient and you cannot use your upper limbs, hands, you cost the system $5.5 million. How so? Because you need attendant care. You need somebody to feed you, to help you transition to toilet, help you transition to bed, out of the bed dress you, all these things. If you get your hand function back, the expenses go to $2.5, $2.7 million over the lifespan of the patient. So 40 hours of therapy on spinal cord injury patient, which costs maybe a couple of thousand dollars, mm-hmm. will save the system $2.5 million to $3 million in a single sitting. Why is this not the best practice? Yeah, so I'm guessing... Why is this not paid by OHIP? OHIP prefers to pay... $5.5 million, then to pay $2.5 million plus $3,000. I'm guessing you're working on convincing them otherwise. Yeah, this is, a, this is an opportunity as well, right? I mean, they need to hear this. I do it in every conference. We do it through company. We do it through every possible venue. Same with stroke patients. We have talked to LINs when they existed, and they knew that if they would apply this technology in their system, they would save between quarter of a million to half a million dollars per stroke patient. We have 50,000 stroke patients in Canada every year. You can do the math. What are the implications, Milosh, for this technology in terms of other kinds of treatment for people who've lost the ability to move? So now we have launched the hand and arm program first because that was the biggest item in my opinion, on the menu for people with disabilities, right? The next one is locomotion, walking, because we have protocols for walking. Mm -hmm. We're building protocols for standing to help people learn how to stand up, stand and balance, also for sitting. And now we're moving this technology in a space of uh, treating different pathologies like depression and other things. And these are trials you're working on right now? We are working on trials right now. We are working on depression right now. We just had a pilot trial with 10 patients who used electrical stimulation of the face to treat major depressive disorder, and we have excellent results. We write, The paper is under review right now, and we are writing a grant to do first randomized controlled trial to demonstrate it, uh, that it works. What's it mean to you to play a role in like transforming a patient's outlook? 
that's what made me leave the aerospace industry in the first place. You can build airplanes, it's exciting, but you don't have that impact on your customer, right? This is tremendous. You change the life of the patient, you change the life of their family, you change the life of their kids, you know, it's transformational. And how often can you have such an impact? You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, a podcast about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and we're speaking today with Dr. Milos Popovich, director of Toronto Rehab's research arm called KITE, an inventor of a device that helps restore mobility in patients suffering from upper limb paralysis. I'm guessing as an inventor, uh, you've dealt with some failures along the way. What do you learn from failure? Failure is my staple of diet. I, I fail 99% of time. I think the failure is essential element. If you have no hesitation to fail, you can get somewhere. If you hesitate to fail, you're not going to get anywhere. So I fail every day, regularly, a couple of times, and I don't have any problems with that. It doesn't sound like you sit around sulking for very long. No, no, not at all. I try to teach my students Try to get things done, and you will fail many, many times along the way. And don't worry about it. But if you fail without learning out of that, that's a disaster. But if you fail and you learn something and you move to the next phase and fail again and move to the next phase, and eventually, after 55,000 failures, you hit the jackpot, that's what we're looking for. What keeps you going? You know, number of things which I have the privilege to work with in my life have been transformational. Like this particular therapy has been transformation. And that is an exciting thing to do. So I take a pride of doing things exceptionally well and in a different way that hasn't been done before. And these are the type of projects, these are the type of things I enjoy doing. I've seen names attached to you uh, in stories in, in the media and that sort of thing, game changer, rock star. Is that an added pressure to live up to for you? No, I just ignore that. I just do my thing. (laughs) You could probably write your ticket anywhere in the world, it seems, in terms of medical research. What keeps you here in Toronto? Toronto is a very unique place. People don't really understand that. Um, There are a couple of elements about Toronto. First of all, when you look at University of Toronto and UHN, it's an outstanding group of scientists and people. The students who come to University of Toronto, this is the pipeline that flows into my research, are probably one of the best in the world. Hmm. So they're absolutely outstanding students. Every single student I had in the last 20 years that I've been here, each one of them has been outstanding, period. So now here's the situation. You have an outstanding partners, outstanding collaborators, 8 million town with all kinds of different healthcare pathologies in neurology, and you have these outstanding students. So my job is to put this together, enable them to do their thing and get out of their way. And I enjoy being in that environment. And people are easy to work with. The politics is not as nasty as in some other places that I had privilege to work. People get things done. And there's a healthy competition in the environment. And when you look I just finished annual review for our scientists. And when I look how our scientists are performing, they're outstanding. They're not good. They're number one in the world, period. There's no discussion about it. 
and you can look at it. And there's data in front of you. Look at the data. You know that your center is the number one. I get this feeling from talking to that your your enthusiasm must be infectious with people. I'm curious how you mentor your students. I always felt that my end product, what I'm doing, is not the papers, is not the mind move therapy. It's not that. I always believe that my end product is these outstanding people who will be the next generation to run rehabilitation and neuroscience. So my effort is always put to train them to be the best that they can be. Of course, I select the best I can select, and then I drill them like a military sergeant for four or five years. Like I always promise them that I will drill them really hard, and my objective is for them to be exceptional scientists. They're totally independent. They write papers without me necessary in the loop to contribute. They present really well. They'll be full package as a person, as a package, as an individual, as a scientist, as a contributor. And they could find a job anywhere in the world in 15 minutes. So all my students got jobs before they graduated, every single one of them. They didn't have a situation I got the, unless they insisted on that thing. They want to take a time off, a couple of months. But all of them would have job offers before they would leave my lab. And I take pride in that. Over the period of whatever, 20 years, I have trained probably between 12 and 14 people who are now professors worldwide. That's what I'm very proud of. What's your advice then to a, a young aspiring scientist just setting out on their journey? Think different. Yes, you read all these journal papers. That tells you what other people have been doing. Check everything yourself. Every single thing which is out there, you must validate it yourself. Make sure that you are absolutely certain that this is correct. And when you publish, everything has to be impeccable. Anybody in the world should be able to repeat what you have done, which means that it's authentic, it's real, and then you can build on that. Even if the, the, the changes are small or minute, with time, you build on this. And then you build your reputation, you build the quality, all these good things. I actually teach them to watch for quality. That's my focus. Going back to the beginning of the podcast, we talked about your backstory of how you came to Canada from Yugoslavia when your homeland was descending into civil war. You, you land in Toronto really with just a suitcase and your visa. When you reflect back now, what do you think of the young man in his 20s who made that decision? It's a crazy thing to do. It forms you as a person. You moved in. There's no way back. You know, you walk the plank, you go to the other side, and then you throw the plank into the water. So you cannot go back. So you're in a new space. You have to make it work. And that sets you in a different way. And Zurich was the same thing, right? When I moved to Zurich, I had to learn the language. I had to learn the physiology. I had to learn how do you treat patients? How do you communicate with patients? I had to learn all that. So decision was, I'm going to do that. And I think being ready to start things completely new in a new environment and being able to do that is very important. That kind of makes you not fearless, but, you know, puts you in a situation that doesn't faze me. I, I can do that. I think that was one of the best things I have done for myself. 
Well, you... it, it was brutal. I'm not suggesting that this is gentle and it's easy. I, it was absolutely brutal. Well, you literally had Yugoslav military circling your apartment. You likely would have been pressed into military service. What did you think when you got that phone call from Toronto? I was very excited. That was great. I, I mean, I, that was a life-changing event. I mean, Andrew Goldberg, who was my mentor, I don't know what possessed him to give me a call because, you know, some person calls from Yugoslavia, which is not, you know, 90% of people, when you ask them, where is Yugoslavia, they will not be able to point on a map, particularly North America. Fortunately, he knew because he, his background is Romanian. So he, he actually knew where this is on the map. And for some reason, he thought I would be a good candidate. And he was very kind to offer me to come and to provide the funding for me to come. And uh, during my tenure with him, I have tried to do my best that not at any point in time he has a second thought that he made an error in judgment. That puts additional pressure on you. But I'm very grateful to Andrew uh, Goldberg, and I would not be who I am if it was not for him. And my mentorship style, I actually learned from him. His style was like, here's your problem, go solve it. That's it. That's the mentorship. <laughs> go solve the problem. Of course, he would come in and say, I don't like that, I don't like this. But he would not tell you how to solve it. And then you become self-dependent, you learn things on your own, you figure it out. And that was the best lesson in life I got. I'm curious if you have ever allowed yourself to think about what might have been had you not got that call from Dr. Goldenberg in Toronto. I usually don't reflect on that. You make your choice, you decide where you're going, and you try to make most out of it. And if that path turns out not to be the right path, you shift and do something else. But I don't spend time looking. I mean, definitely will not be what, what has happened and I will not be here probably. And we will not have this conversation. You go home though, right? Still? I do go home and I, uh, my parents are still living in Belgrade. Now this is Serbia, right? So they're living in Belgrade and I go visit them once or twice a year, depending on how much time I have. And... Um, what do they think of their son? I mean, my parents uh, were, because I have done all this on my own, they were just watching all that and they, they were fascinated by the fact that I've done all these jumps and, and did all this. So my parents are extremely proud, but they also know what, what were the cost of that. If I didn't have parents who were supportive and who provided me with proper guidance and within their means, right, I would not be here. And same applies for my wife, right? I, I have a wife which tolerates a crazy person. So having somebody who is there for you and make sure that you are on the right track and you don't get insane in the process is uh, it's a major asset. Not many people have that. And that, that is something that I cherish. What should we look for next from Dr. Milos Popovich? A couple of things. I'm now the director of the Institute, the Kite Institute, right? I think we will see dramatic growth in that enterprise, and we're working on it very hard. I have an extraordinary team of scientists and uh, management who is really doing their utmost to make this to stand out and work exceptionally effective. And I, I am very proud of that team. And the second thing, I have new generation of students, and we are diving into using electrical stimulation in stem cells. I'm very proud of that. That's very exciting. Dr. Milos Popovich, Senior Scientist and Director at Toronto Rehab's Kite Research Institute, 
Thanks for speaking with us and continued success. Thank you so much. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca, and please let us know what you think. That's a wrap for this episode of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening. 